Thanks, team, for leading us so well this morning. But don't go off, because I still want you to lead later. <laughs> so just a reminder, if you don't know me, my name is, my name is Paul, and I have the privilege of um, leading a team that oversees New Life Community Church, and we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. So uh, if you have your Bibles... We're going to be rooted in Mark chapter 8, verses 22 onwards. So that's Mark chapter 8, verses 22 onwards. Keep your thumb in that one. And if you're taking notes, which if you can, I remember when I was, <laughs> when I was younger, I, I was terrible at my concentration level, so I used to fall asleep. At the time, in fact, Joe used to, and uh, my wife used to squeeze my hand when I was nodding off. That was my, my wake-up cue, uh, until I discovered what it was to take notes. So originally, notes was just a deterrent from me falling asleep, uh, and now I realize the value of notes as well at the same time. <laughs> so if you can take notes, I highly recommend you do, not just so you don't fall asleep, but because it's also good. Uh, the title for today's message is Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Christ. Now, I don't know if anyone has ever been to uh, Southampton General Hospital before. You don't obviously usually gen- you know, visit hospitals unless you're visiting someone. Or, you know, it's not like a tourism spot, is it? But if you have, <laughs> you might know that it's a, it's a teaching hospital, which means the environment and culture of the hospital is not just about patient care, but it's uh, the place in which like, medical students are nurtured and given practical experience alongside seasoned medical professionals. So in any circumstance, there is an opportunity to learn and an opportunity to teach, which I assume is incredibly exciting for the medical students and not so exciting if you are the patient. You are surrounded by a bunch of keen wannabe doctors who've kind of been given this permission to poke and prod around you a little bit. And when we look at these verses that we're going to look at today, I want you to imagine it like a teaching hospital where we have Jesus, who is like the seasoned doctor, taking his young medical students to three different scenarios. And in each one, not only is he directly helping his patients, but at the same time, he's taking opportunity to teach the students around him. Now, a good teacher asks good questions, and good questions help us think things through seriously for ourselves. Now, each of these scenes that we're going to look at, Jesus anchors the moment with key questions. In each, and it's those key questions that we're going to give our primary attention to today, starting with the first one that Jesus asks in scene one, which is, do you see anything. Do you see anything? So if you have Bibles, we're going to read uh, about scene one from verses 22 through to 26. And I'm reading from the ESV version. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand He led him out of the village, and when he had 
When he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home to his he sent him to his home saying, Do not even enter the village. Lord God, I just I pray even now over your word that it would be alive to us. Thank you that it is living and active. May it be alive to us afresh again. Lord God, may you bring about transformation and understanding and revelation of your word to us this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scene one. Do you see anything? Uh, It turns out, this is not a bragging moment, by the way, um, I have pretty good eyesight, uh, which, to be honest, actually wasn't the report I was expecting when I last went to the opticians. I've I've not, because... Marky is a very seasoned, experienced optician. I've, I've actually restrained from at, like, using specific examples in fear of getting anything wrong. So, <clears throat> When I went to the opticians, actually, I was convinced that I was going to need some sort of prescription for glasses. However, it turns out it's not the case, and there is still a small glimmer of hope for me in pursuing that dream of piloting a fighter jet. <clears throat> So if there's a British version of Top Gun for people in their 40s, that's me. Call me up. I'm ready. Yet, despite me being able to see pretty well, it's amazing how many things I miss sight of. For example, (laughs) my wife Jo (laughs) did a fantastic job at cutting her own hair a couple of weeks ago. You can already see where this is going, yeah? And lots of people over the next few days paid her lovely compliments regarding her new haircut. Lots of people, except for me, who hadn't even the faintest clue that she had indeed cut her hair and done a fabulous job. In fact, the most disappointing part was I had to take cues from others that suddenly alerted to me to this event that I had missed. How could I have pretty good eyesight and yet been so blind at the same time? Now, as we work through these scriptures today, I think this is helpful to have in mind. Jesus really starts to pick up this focus on seeing him for all that he is. The context in which we have landed and have actually consistently shared over the last few weeks as part of our working through the the Gospel of Mark, is that with Jesus, the disciples have seen the miraculous, supported the miraculous, and even been part of the miracle themselves, and yet they still have struggled to truly recognize the miracle worker who was with them, and the ways of that miracle worker. They're seeing, and yet they're not seeing. And here in scene one, a blind man has been brought to Jesus... And he leads this man away from the crowd. And I'm kind of imagining it a bit like, you know, when the doctor comes to the waiting room and he says, "Uh, Mr. So-and-so, can you come with me, please? And he leads the patient to the ward and draws the curtain around the hospital bed with, you know, in Southampton, the awkward moment of lots of medical students, you know, accompanying him as well. 
So here in this scene, we're assuming that the disciples are with Jesus. And like medical students, they've got their clipboards ready to go, take notes, and they're eager to learn how Jesus will begin to treat the blind man. Now, privacy is not really why Jesus leads the man out of the village. But in this, in what Jesus does, we are seeing something of the way of Jesus, something about how he works and what he wants to achieve. Clearly, the compassion of God was present for this man who couldn't see. And there's going to be a personal, physical, and probably spiritual transformation for this guy. But it's a transformation that occurs away from the crowd. And I think that's probably an interesting observation in itself. That there is something of God's way and timing here that shows us that as we come to him, at times he may draw us or lead us away from the crowd in order to bring about a personal healing. And that in God's sovereignty, he feels that at this time, actually this is not for everyone else. Right here and right now, this is just for you. No doubt at the right time, the crowd will hear and see for themselves the incredible difference Jesus has made to this man's life. But in this moment, this is for this man. God knows what he's doing, and his timing is perfect. Now, with all of that in mind, on this occasion, this actually isn't just for the benefit of the blind man. This is also an intentional, teachable moment for the disciples. The man is healed in two stages. Stage one, Jesus lays his hands on him, and the man's sight is semi-recovered. We won't major on the spitting in the eyes deal okay, today. Okay? Stage two, Jesus lays his hands upon him again, and his sight then is fully restored. Now, I guess I, the natural question to ask in scene one is, why did Jesus heal the man in this way? Well, I believe the answer for that is anchored in the question that Jesus directly asks the blind man, and yet at the same time, indirectly, is asking his medical students, his disciples, do you see anything? Ever heard that before? <laughs> Have you had that before? When someone is directing a question to someone else, this is what wise people do. They, it's like they're speaking to an individual and yet they're speaking to you at the same time in a very unnerving way, you know? It's quite a gift to be able to do that. You know, God does that. When a prophetic word is being shared to an individual and then you suddenly realize that actually God's addressing you at the same time with that same word. The blind man's answer really reflects the reality of how the disciples are currently seeing Jesus and the work of Jesus. And it's all a bit blurry. Stage one, Jesus is showing where the disciples are at. They can get a sense of some of the picture of who Jesus is, but the other stuff, it's you know, blurred edges. They still can't quite make it out. Stage two of the healings where Jesus wants them to be. He wants to get the disciples to a place where they can see the picture fully and clearly. See who Jesus is and know who Jesus is. And so much is that, of that is connected to their willingness to let Jesus lead them and impart to them that clear picture. 
In fact, so many of these verses are actually connected to a person's faith, and particularly the faith of the disciples. However, here Jesus is majoring, he's majoring on the seeing part, the revelation, the recognizing, the understanding. And it's the revelation and recognizing that kind of opens this door for faith to burst through. If you know who you've got standing in front of you, it's easier to be convinced of what they're able to do. So Jesus uses a physical situation to help show a spiritual reality, which often happens in the Gospels, a moment that brings blessing to an individual's circumstances and then also at the same time provides a teachable moment to those whom his heart is longing to show something more. The sight is fully restored for the blind man, and through that miracle, Jesus is revealing to the disciples that in him, in Jesus, though now they see in part, one day they will see in full. And in him and through him, they will move from a position of blurriness to clarity and a clearer picture. But this is not just about God's revelation to them. This is also about the disciples' part. It's about them intentionally seeking God out for this stuff. To come to Jesus like the blind man, be willing to be led by him, be hungry for understanding and for knowledge and for clarity and to let Jesus impart that to them. This is where the willingness of Jesus to reveal and the faith of the disciples, they, they meet. And that's kind of like the significant tension that continues for anyone, by the way, who follows Jesus. The revelation of God and the faith of the individual. Do you see anything? Scene two. Who do people say that I am? So that's Mark. We're going to read from verses 27 through to 33. Who do people say that I am? And Jesus went on with his disciples, after healing the blind mind, that is, to the villages of Caesarea, Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, uh, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So, okay, in our teaching hospital analogy, Jesus, our seasoned doctor, he's walking down the corridors, heading towards the auditorium where he's got a lecture to give. But on the way, he takes another opportunity to engage the minds of his medical students. To do this, he asks a question, who do people say that I am? Now, if we follow the flow of the previous scene with the blind man, the root question, actually, that Jesus is essentially asking remains the same. When he says, who do people say that I am? Jesus is asking, what do others see when they look at me? And the general consensus is that the crowd 
see Jesus as another prophet, like John the Baptist or Elijah. But really, this question is a lead-in. It's an entry-level question that moves toward the heart of the question Jesus really wants to get them engaging with. It would be like saying like this, okay, here's an example, contemporary example. In the UK, who would be the most voted actor to play the next James Bond? Because anyone got any favorites on that one, by the way? Anyone got any favorites for the next James Bond? Who? Idris Elba. Okay. That would be my mother-in-law's favorite because she just fancies him, so. I know. <laughs> um, I lost track on that one. That took me off you, didn't it? <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> so... So, <laughs> so that you're thinking about everyone's opinion at that moment in time. The follow-up question could be something like this, and who would you? So there's a question about everyone, which leads into really challenging your mind to think, but who would you think would be a great next James Bond? Okay? So Jesus says to his disciples, okay, this is what everyone else thinks when they see me. Now tell me, what do you think? What do you see? Do you see anything? Or more specifically, who do you say that I am? Now it's here that Peter is able to say with conviction what he sees when he looks at Jesus. And he responds to that question with, a, with an answer. You are the Christ. Now, the more fuller account of this conversation, this dialogue between Jesus and his disciples can actually be found in Matthew 15. And Jesus essentially says in that passage, hey, Peter, what you see actually hasn't come from the crowd, but actually has been revealed to you from my Father in heaven. This is special revelation to you. And it's upon people like you who have had this special revelation that I will build my church. And it's in light of this revelation that Jesus begins to teach his disciples. From that point of revelation, he starts to, out of the overflow of that, impart to his disciples that he has a mission. And that mission he has to fulfill. And that mission is to suffer and to be rejected and to be killed. And then after three days, rise again. And I think I almost feel like when reading through these verses and this journey that Jesus he desperately wants to show and share the reality of his walk that he must walk and the cost that will come as the Son of God who will give his life for the sake of the world. But he cannot successfully share until they begin to see him for who he is, until they have that special revelation. And I think there is something about that nature of that journey that we should receive and understand. Jesus is teaching all the time, as he was then, he is doing that, he's still doing that now. But it's in light of the special revelation of knowing that he is the Christ that opens the door for Jesus to impart to you and to share with you and to show you so much more. And we should be expectant of that. To follow Christ is a journey. And I think in that journey, Jesus is teaching us all the time and there were going to be moments of special revelation. Moments when we, you know, when you just get it. It just clicks. It just makes sense. It's those moments that, that the door opens 
for then Jesus to impart and to share and to show us something even more. So Peter has that special revelation. But before he gets a chance to uh, be really puffed up about the moment he's had, yeah, I just had a special revelation from Jesus. He's the Christ. He's actually quickly brought back down to earth when Jesus gives him a right telling off and acknowledges the spiritual force at work in that moment to disrupt and to derail this precious time that Jesus is having with his disciples. And again, this is all about, it's all about sight. You remember when Peter, in great faith, jumps off the boat to meet Jesus who is walking on the water towards him. Now, as long as Peter remains looking at Jesus, his feet remain firmly on top of the water. But he gets distracted, he starts looking elsewhere, and he loses focus, and he loses, therefore, his footing and begins to begins to sink. And it's the same here as Jesus addresses Peter in this moment. You've lost sight of what matters in this moment here. You've just had it and now you've just lost it because you're no longer setting your sight on the things of God, but you've started setting your sight on the things of the crowd. And that's giving a foothold to the devil. I will say this, I think, you know, just as a reminder. God's grace, his kindness, unmerited kindness, is sufficient for every one of us. He has and he will lavish kindness upon kindness through the wonderful achievement of his son through the cross to you. But for every one of us here who've had this wonderful revelation that leads to seeing, helping us to see Jesus for who he is, not just a prophet, not just a good man, but the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Peter's moment here stands as a warning against setting our sights on anything other than Jesus and that it only takes a moment like this for God's enemy to get a foot in, make use of it, and to disrupt and to derail the precious moments that God has with his people. God calls us to be humble And God certainly doesn't have a problem with humbling us when we get a bit too puffed up. The scripture here helps us to remember in those moments when God is revealing something to us, let's be ones who aspire to keep our eyes fixed on him. When you get moments of special revelation, take that moment to say, thank you, Jesus. Help me keep my eyes fixed on you, not lose sight of who he is. Scene three, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So we're going to just read through the final few verses of Mark. So we're going to read from verses 34 through to 9 verse 1. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. 
For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Okay, so back to our teaching hospital analogy. Okay, so we've done the round, around the ward, seen the patient, Dr. Dr. Jesus and his disciples and his students, they're making their way to the auditorium. And at both points, Jesus is taking the opportunity to teach and engage their minds by asking key questions. So now we've arrived at the lecture hall. Okay, the crowd's been called. They've taken their seats along with the medical students and Jesus begins to teach them. Now I think my question here again in this, is, in this passage of scripture is, who is Jesus addressing? Who is he speaking to? Joe and I have been, um, been working through the series Friends on Netflix. Okay, so it's a bit of a nostalgia hit. You know, you watch it and you remember something of life in the 90s. Uh, the times when my knees didn't creak, the times when I had hair, uh, and, and the times when I did actually have a poster of Jennifer Aniston on my wall. <laughs> Just so that when I was younger, before I met Joe. <clears throat> now, in Friends, they do a really great job of making comedy out of awkward scenes. So in one of these scenes, Rachel and a guy called Paul head to his cabin for a romantic weekend, only to discover that upon arrival, Ross, Rachel's friend and ex-boyfriend, is already there on a secret date with Paul's daughter. Okay? You know, I mean, I could just even imagine why. Okay, so I go away with Joe, and suddenly Myers decides to bring her boyfriend, and I'm like, you know, where's my store of baseball bats? What am I going to do here? So Paul has no idea that Ross is there, and Rachel decides to try and help keep Ross's presence a secret and guide him out of this house and to safety, which results in like Rachel shouting out some ridiculously loud instructions that sound like they're meant for Paul, but instead are meant for Ross. So in verses 34 and 35, Jesus makes these two statements. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now, whilst this would be true for the crowd that were listening, I imagine Jesus' voice projection is like, in his moment, extra loud, because I think he is pro- his primary audience for these two statements are the students who are learning and now beginning to see him for who he is. And that Jesus speaks to them and is teaching them in this moment once again by saying something like this. This, <laughs> I can't, I can't, I'm sure Jesus does it in a comedy kind of moment, but this is the reality for those that I have called, Peter. This is the heart attitude I desire you to have, James. That your sights remain on me, that you let me lead you, that this will be hard, but the reward of following me will be so much more than this world can offer. And so, to the crowd who 
have yet to have that special revelation that these guys are having. Jesus calls them to himself. And to engage with them, he uses this question. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This is a good teacher asking good questions to those who are curious about who Jesus is. He's helping them to lead them to the place where revelation and faith meet. What are you living for in this life? What is the good stuff you're aspiring to? And is that really the good stuff? Have you stopped? Have you paused? Have you considered what it is to live and to breathe and to love and to work and to laugh and to learn? Why are these things important? And fundamentally, where does the drive to pursue these things come from? What is my purpose? Do you see anything? I think there is great merit in following the example of Jesus and like good teachers, ask good questions that help people think through their choices and paths. That it, that it may be that they begin to seriously consider those bigger questions of life. Help lead them to the place where revelation and faith meet. And we as God's people, we can do that gracefully. Paul says that you should let your gentleness be evident to all. Asking those questions is just another way of us as God's church sowing seeds into people's lives. And then we just trust God with the rest. He's going to be the one who brings that special revelation. He's the one who's going to cause growth of understanding. <clears throat> Let me invite the worship team up. How's it doing? Okay. So, just the guys come up and get themselves ready. I want to say that New Life Community Church should feel a bit like a, a teaching hospital. A place where people can receive support in their need. And it should be a place where people are nurtured in their faith and given practical experience to grow. Of course, that's going to be awkward at times. We as students can unnecessarily poke and prod. And of course, at times, we may get the diagnosis wrong. But that is all part of the learning process helping people to grow in their faith, giving them responsibility and opportunity to work out that faith in practice. We want to give people platforms to try gifting and train gifting and to look to those of you who have experience in the room to help steer and encourage those younger students, knowing at times mistakes will be made and that's just all part of the learning process. Should we stand together? Now, as a response, I would like us to come back to that question. Do you see anything? I would like us just to close our eyes for a moment. Because the great news is this is not the kind of sight, the physical sight, that God is concerned about here. This is 
the opening of our spiritual eyes to all that he is and all that he's doing. And as we come to a place of response in worship, I would also like to stir the hearts of those who have prophetic gifting to help usher in some of that revelation. God's revelation for individuals here and for us as his church. I want us to be full of faith for God, for what God will do with us in these moments now. Because I, I do believe there's going to be an unlocking for some individuals here. When I was preparing, I felt that God has been so longing for some of you, well, for all of you, but I think particularly some individuals here, to see him as he is. And like a curtain being drawn open, there's an exposure to the mystery that has been hidden maybe before you for a bit. God sees you. God knows you. And his desire is for you to see him and to know him. Let your faith arise. Do you see anything? Let me also ask the prophets in the room or those who carry prophetic gifting, those who hear from God, who see things in God, let me ask you a question here right now, like that which is given to Jeremiah. What do you see? What do you see? Prophecy is for the building up of God's church, is meant for good and is good. You might be hearing something this morning or seeing something. You might be here for the first time, and I mean, or hearing something or seeing something for the first time for the good of someone else. Let me encourage you to come share that with me. Remember that this is a teaching hospital and we want to give people room to grow in that gift. So those who are prophetic, have prophetic gifting, what do you see? And let me just, I'm going to kick things off with an example, okay? Just so it helps the ball roll. I was out running the other day. It was very early in the morning, and the fog was descending, and I came across a field, and um, there was three strong trees, very strong trees, in the midst of that field, and the fog had descended upon it. And you could see them. You can make out the trees, but you couldn't fully see them. And I was running past, you know, I felt God say to me, You see those trees? Look how strong they are. But they're not quite visible to everyone yet. But one day, they will see, everyone will see clearly how strong those trees are. And sometimes, you know, those moments just break your heart a little bit because, you know, I have, you know, currently just have such a desire to see Verwood and Falling Bridge and, and Wimborne just grow so strong. And, uh, and I felt that it was God's affirmation, you know, that, that, no, no, hang on a minute. No, they're already strong. They're already strong. Not everyone sees that right now, but it won't be long before the fog is lifted and everyone sees that nice and clearly. So with every prophetic word, we weigh that but I just want to thank you, God, for the way that you speak to us and the way that you help us see things in the natural that conveys something of the supernatural. 
physical moments that convey spiritual realities. And I pray now, Lord God, Father, for you to just unveil our eyes to reveal, Lord, what you are doing and who you are, that we may see clearly, Father, and begin to see clearly all that you are and all the good that you're going to do. So, Lord, just help us now. So as we respond in worship, if you feel that God is speaking to you, come and share it with me, and um, we'll see what God does.